Tous les matins, on essaye de traverser le miroir et de regarder le monde différemment. It is true, I am a woman. Une fois que ce saut est fait, tout devient possible. Hello, I'm Charlotte Kasseragi. Welcome to the podcast of Les Rendez-vous littéraires Rue Cambon, a place where we meet to talk about writing, to talk about books. Let's meet women writers who have just taken their first step, the most decisive, the most difficult in the world of literature. How did their vocation call to them? What are their writing rituals? Who reads them and what do they read? I'm Erica Wagner, and it's my pleasure to introduce Louise Kennedy and welcome her to Chanel's podcast of Les Rendezvous Littéraires, Rue Campbell. Louise Kennedy's stunning debut novel, Trespasses, is a remarkable demonstration of the maxim, the personal is political. Set in the mid-1970s in Northern Ireland, it paints a portrait of a community riven by sectarian violence. Catholics and Protestants don't mix. British soldiers and those who resist their efforts at control enact different forms of violence on those who are perceived to have broken the rules. Its protagonist is Kushla Lavery, a 24-year-old schoolteacher still mourning the death of her father just over two years before. Kushla's mother deals with her loss by drinking. Kushla's brother, Eamon, runs the local pub. As Kushla navigates her path into adulthood, the reader goes on a journey that at first seems, for want of a better word, ordinary. Then gradually we see how the troubles, as they were euphemistically called, affect every aspect of every life. The New York Times called Trespasses a brilliant, heartbreaking debut. Writing in The Guardian, novelist and critic Kevin Power offered the highest praise. Trespasses is a novel distinguished by a quality rare in fiction at any time, a sense of utter conviction. It is a story told with such compulsive attention to the textures of its world that every page feels like a moral and intellectual event. It was Eason Novel of the Year in the Anne Post Irish Book Awards in 2022. Louise Kennedy began to explore the weight of Irish history in her first book, The End of the World is a Cul-de-Sac, a masterful collection of short stories that, like Trespasses, brilliantly weaves her observations of the natural world and family dynamics with a powerful sense of the broader social context her characters inhabit. It's worth noting that she's the only woman to have been shortlisted twice for the Sunday Times Audible Short Story Award, in 2019 and 2020. The world she describes is one she knows, at least in part, from her own experience. She herself grew up Catholic on the outskirts of Belfast. Her grandfather ran a pub that suffered two attempted bombings. Her grandmother was badly injured when a bomb exploded in front of a local bank and she was caught in the blast. Louise Kennedy's family eventually moved south to Ireland, where she worked as a chef for three decades before eventually trying her hand at writing. I'll be fascinated to discuss that remarkable journey with her. Welcome, Louise. I'm so delighted to have a chance to speak with you. Thank you very much for having me, Erica.
as I said at the end of my introduction, you didn't start writing until a bit later in your life. I think you did a social degree at university. Mm -hmm. You worked in a bank. Tell us a little bit about your path to the page. Yes, I did a social science degree when I left school and thought I might like to be a social worker. And then, I don't know, I think I probably have a tendency to over-empathise with people. So I used to like cry at case conferences and things, so it clearly wasn't for me. So I then took a job just because I needed a job in a merchant bank in the city of London. So this was like 1988-89, where I had probably one of the worst jobs in the city of London, actually, which was putting microfiche in alphabetical order in an American bank. And I did that for about a year, um, by which stage I was um, probably ready to do something a bit less kind of... Um, mechanical herb. So I borrowed money and did a cordon bleu cookery course and then I cooked and ran restaurants for around 30 years and my husband and I had a restaurant and um, it was ailing is probably a charitable way to describe it. So it, we had opened it just before, you know, the, the big recession happened. It was in 2007 and thought, oh, it's kind of off to a good start and it might get, we presumed it would get busier. And then about a year later, all of the customers had disappeared and the banks were collapsing and things. So we somehow we managed to limp along until 2014. Um, we, and we still had the restaurant when a friend asked me to join a writing group. So I thought it was a hilarious idea, but um, I agreed and um, eventually got into the car with her when she, she, she turned up to pick me up um, unsolicited, I suppose. And um, yeah, so that was, um, I mean, it was 2014, I was 47. I'd never written anything at all. So yeah, I, I guess what I'm trying to say is that I never intended to write. I didn't expect to write. Interesting what you said at the beginning of that answer, though, about over-empathising with people, because I imagine that's, I know, that's very useful as a writer yeah, to be able um, to think your way possibly, into people. <laughs> possibly it is. I, I guess um, at the time... Um, I couldn't see that there'd ever be any kind of use for it. It certainly was a disadvantage in that um, career path. Um, so, Having come to writing a bit later, what do you think that brought to your work? Obviously, you had much more experience under your belt than someone who starts writing at 20 and knows that that's the path for them. Um, yeah, it's funny. I've been asked a couple of times if I wished I'd started earlier and I really don't because I think in my 20s I would have been too chaotic and self-conscious in my 30s I was having babies and things and um and I and I worked all that time as well and um and then in my 40s um you know we, we were I was kind of presiding over a restaurant that was going down the tube so I just couldn't have done done it earlier than that and um I I, th I suppose maybe what it what I did have when I actually did start to write was um I had really great reading habits my mother taught me to read before I started school so I guess I've read about three books a week ever since then and um I, I certainly didn't realise it at the time, but I think as readers we take in um, the shape of things, we take in form and, and maybe technique to some extent, or structure certainly, and not just story. And I think that was a huge help, um, but I didn't realise it. Yes, I think we absorb those things yeah. without knowing it. Mm -hmm. You can, of course, look mm -hmm. for them consciously. Mm -hmm. But when we're just devouring books, that's what's going yeah. into us. Were you thinking consciously at all? I referred to your background, mm -hmm. growing up first in Belfast mm -hmm. and then moving to the South. Was that history something you thought about consciously or was it just so much part of your life? I think it was part of my life in the way that 
um, it could only be part of my life because it had ended very abruptly, I suppose, when I was 12. So we lived in the in the north of Ireland, near Belfast, until 1979 when I was 12. And I suppose after a decade of um, of various things that, um, associated with the troubles that affected my family fairly profoundly, we left and moved to the south. And um, it, it wasn't that far away. It was 100 miles or so, but it was very far away in, in the sense that, um, you know, it... The government was Irish. We weren't, you know, in a place that had British soldiers on the streets where identity was very contested. Um, It was a very Catholic place compared with the town that we lived in, the north, which was very Protestant. And we we were, you know, among a handful of Catholics, I suppose. Maybe something happens if you if you leave a place that um, that you're that it seems to be in very stark relief or something. So you were bundled into this car in 2014 and taken to a writing group, but you did eventually do, if I'm correct, mm-hmm. a master's degree and a PhD. Yeah. In creative mm-hmm. writing, what did going into writing with an academic mm-hmm. angle? What did that bring to your writing? I think it gave me structure um, and gave me deadlines. It gave me community as well because, you know, it, the the way that it works, I mean, I presume a lot of creative writing MAs are like this, um, but we would submit work that, w- that would be workshopped. And, um, you know, there were certain... Um, I don't want to say constraints, but it was all done in a very kind of positive way and constructive way. I think that was that was really good. I think because I chose to do it in Belfast, that was really significant too because... Um, I did the, I enrolled in the MA programme in 2015 and then I stayed on to do a PhD and then I had a fellowship in Queen's after I finished it. So this is the longest kind of sustained time that I've spent in the North, I suppose, or associated with the North since I was a child. I didn't think that it was going to make a difference or it was going to be in my head, but I think that maybe that influenced why I chose to write about a book set in, in Belfast rather than any other book when it came to writing my first novel. Tell us a little bit about your path to publication because mm-hmm. there's a big difference between writing, being taken to a writing group, even doing a master's mm-hmm. and a PhD, mm-hmm. but then coming to be a published yeah. author. How did that happen for you? Um, I think it happened. I mean, some of it was luck, but some of it, I suppose, is because there were probably things that I did that were quite strategic that I didn't understand that they were strategic. So, um from pretty early on in the writing group, there was one member who encouraged everyone all the time to enter um, competitions and things. And um, they were pretty small, a lot of them. I won a couple of things and I was shortlisted for some other things. And I think that is very encouraging. And then um, when I was doing the PhD, I suppose I was producing short stories and um, maybe because it was in a very intense kind of period of time, it, it seemed to produce work that not it wasn't entirely related but after maybe after about two or three years I appeared to have 10 stories that fitted together Um, I hadn't set out to write a collection but they did seem to fit together and one of the stories was published in a Belfast based journal called The Tangerine and uh, somehow it landed on the desk of um, Eleanor Byrne and um, she was just um, building a list at the time and contacted me through Queen's University in Belfast where I was a a student. So we met and I signed with her and um, then I had a period when I was off sick um, for a while and um, to avoid watching Netflix morning, noon and night um, I forced myself to try and write a thousand words a day, which I did and I pretty soon had a draft. So all of those things came together. I think the the main thing that kind of was the spur to publication, I suppose, um, 
was that I was shortlisted for the Sunday Times Audible Award and that really helped hugely. That but must have been very significant. I think it was very significant for me because even in the very first meeting ever that we went to um, of the writing group, uh, someone uh, brought in, I think they'd printed the six shortlisted stories that year. So I was really aware of that competition. And I do remember thinking, God, imagine writing anything that would be on that list, you know. So yeah, that was kind of, I think it was sort of huge personally. And so then not once really but great. twice. Yeah, that was two years, yeah. So yeah. you're being sent a signal. How how important is it to you to be published? Because there's we're going to talk a little bit more about process, but mm-hmm. you're having your work mm-hmm. then go out. You find an agent. You find the next step is to find a publisher. Mm-hmm. How was that next step for you? That all happened like very quickly. I think I was with Eleanor maybe in February. And then the Sunday Times shortlist I knew it was on the shortlist maybe by about June or July and I had this kind of mad 65,000 or so words of something that could charitably be called a novel in that it was long and um uh, she thought that I should maybe to try and put some shape on it and, and fix it up a bit. So I worked pretty hard on trying to make about three or four chapters of it um sensible and and wrote a synopsis. Then she submitted that to publishers along with what was pretty much the bones of the short story collection. Um, yeah, and then Bloomsbury bought both of those. I think I was probably lucky to find a publisher for the short stories because they're really hard. I mean, people don't, I think readers love them. People who love them love them, but I don't know if publishers really love to see a collection of short stories coming in the door. I think it's harder for them, partly because in Britain, mm-hmm. anyway, um, collections of short stories are not eligible for most prizes. Okay, is that it? So my feeling is that's why that limit's Mm. there. If it can't win the Booker Prize or something like Mm. that, um, which is too bad because, as you say, I think readers love short stories. Yeah, I think there's something maybe as well that um, Irish people sort of love short stories because um, a lot of the English curriculum in Irish schools was built around the short story. And in Irish schools, when you learned the Irish language, it wasn't novels that you were being told to read. It was um, short stories. And that brings me nicely to my next question, which is about the authors that inspire you. Mm -hmm. And you're reading in this novel, Edna Mm O'Brien gets a name check. Mm -hmm. And also a fascinating book. You talk about um, the poet Kieran Carson's Mm -hmm. uh, The Irish for Mm -hmm. No. Tell us a little bit about why these authors are important to you and any authors I might have missed. So, yes, Kieran Carson was a poet from Belfast, best known as a poet, but he also wrote um, prose and I think he might have written librettos as well because he was a wonderful um, uh, traditional musician. And Kieran Carson, um, I mean, I think he's been given a kind of informal um, title of the as Laureate of the Troubles. And I think when I read him, there's a kind of self-consciousness about the language, which sounds awful, but it's actually OK. And I think the reason for that is that he was brought up learning the Irish language in a place where nobody was learning the Irish language. And English is a foreign thing. And there's always sort of wordplay and uh, and sort of odd associations that he makes. But also, I think that he, um, as a writer, maps Belfast in a way, a poem called Belfast uh, Confetti, where he... Um, 
where he recalls trying to get around the part of Belfast that he grew up in by bike, but he can't because um, the army have blocked off parts of the road and everywhere he goes, he's stopped and asked where he's going by someone. And it isn't always the army. Sometimes it's maybe a, a local person who doesn't want to see a stranger around because maybe, I don't know, maybe there's some sort of paramilitary activity. All of these things are, are suggested. And also he, he references his place places and uh, streets and old things that my you know about Belfast that I would have been brought up hearing about from my my father and then there's um there's Edna O'Brien um who's probably you know she she is really my favorite um Irish writer probably my favorite writer I think with her um there's a lyricism I, the first time I ever came across her was with the Country Girls, which was banned in Ireland for a long time. And lots of books were banned in Ireland um, because they were, um, I, I guess they were terrified they were going to corrupt our little minds or something. But um, I remember coming across um, a copy of that book in school. And I, I think it didn't have, in the school library, it didn't have, you know, all the books in the school library had a little pouch in the front with a cardboard uh, ticket. Um, but it didn't have that. And I'd like to think that some older girl had had left it there in the hope that it would fall into the wrong hands or the right hands, actually, the teenage girls. But I think that she writes about um, brutality and uh, cruelty with um, with the lyricism that's like really very beautiful. And also I think th- there's a courage in, in what she writes about as well. Her last book, which I hope wasn't her last book, uh, Girl, apparently she travelled to to Nigeria, you know, with cash in her underwear with which to bribe officials if necessary to try to write a book about uh, the girls who were kidnapped by Boko Haram. Yes, and it's worth saying that she did that at the age of, I think, 89? 86 or 80 something. <laughs> oh yeah, maybe it was 89. Yeah, just incredible stuff. Um, yeah, so I love her. And then also, I mean, maybe another writer, um, a, a, another writer who wrote about uh, the Troubles is Anne Devlin. So she had a collection of short stories that was published in 1985 by Faber and Faber called The Way Paver. And there's one particular story in there called Naming the Names. There's one paragraph in there and I probably read it 20 times and every time I do, I am terrified. And it's so understated. And there's just this um, sort of creeping sense of menace that just she ramps it up just a little bit with every line and I just until it's almost unbearable. I just think it's wonderful writing. I love her work. Well, your writing to me also has a beautiful, understated quality. And at this point, I'd like you to read a little bit for us. Will you read just the opening of your novel for us? I will. Thank you. Kushla wrapped her handbag in her coat and pushed it into the gap between the beer fridge and the till. Her brother Eamon was bent over the counter with a stock list. He looked up at her and his eyes narrowed. He inclined his head at the mirror that ran the length of the bar. Kushla leaned in to check her reflection. Father Slattery had marked her with a thick cross an inch wide and two inches long. The rub of her finger raised the piney resinous scent of whatever blessed ungen the ashes were mixed with and blurred the cruciate shape to a sooty smudge. Eamon slapped a wet serviette into her hand. Hurry up, he hissed. Most of the men who drank in the pub did not get ashes on Ash Wednesday or do the Stations of the Cross on Good Friday or go to Mass on Sunday. It was one thing to drink in a Catholic-owned bar, quite another to have your pint pulled by a woman smeared in papish war paint. Kushla buffed until the skin on her forehead was pink, the serviette blackened, flittered. She tossed it in the bin. Eamon muttered something under his breath. The only word Kushla could make out was Egypt. 
Thank you so much. I want to come now to talking a little bit about your process of writing. You live in Sligo, mm -hmm. and my understanding is you have a shed that you write in. Am I right? I do have a shed. Why is it a special place for you? Maybe at the very start, uh, when, when I was trying to write in the beginning, because I always had jobs as well, and I had children who were still in school. And also because when I was a student in Queen's University in Belfast, that's like 150 miles away from my home. So there didn't seem to be a lot of time, but somehow I was um, getting a lot of work done. Um, you know, I'd get up at maybe five in the morning and work or I'd work late at night or I'd take my laptop um, with me to work, to my job and, you know, try to write on my lunch break. And um, I seemed to just get through the work. It was never, it never felt like a chore. There were just always things that I wanted to work on. And then I think things probably got a bit different when I was writing the novel because I said earlier that um, I'd been sick. So I had a, a diagnosis for melanoma and I had some surgery and I knew I was going to have about two or three months off work and, and I started to write the book that way. And I think maybe it was something about the fact that I had a stretch of time to myself, which I'd never had before. But then also because it was a novel, which is quite different from writing a short story. The, the stories for me come out of something that's nearly elusive um, that very often, you know, some of my stories in the collection are like 4,000 words long or 4,500 words long. With a couple of them, I probably wrote 40, 45,000 words to try to get that. Gosh. Now, not a linear 45,000 words because obviously you're looking at, you know, you're hitting novel length at that stage. So it wasn't like that. But with stops and starts and trying to figure out maybe whose story it was or working with different tenses or maybe starting six months earlier or, you know, just there were different things that had to be done. And um, so the stories, um, yeah, there was just a lot more feeling around with the stories or something. So because I'd find it really hard um, that once I kind of figured I knew what I was doing, I was like terrified with the stories. I, I guess I was kind of frightened to um, to let it go. So I'd, I just really inched myself really meticulously line by line for however long it took um, until I thought I was going mad and then and, and never thinking that it was working and then I'd get to a point where I couldn't do any more with them and then I'd think they were done. In Trespasses, the Irish language, as you mentioned, plays a role. Kushla begins teaching Irish mm -hmm. to a group of people who are interested yeah. in the Republican cause. What's your relationship to the Irish language? Um, so when I was a child in primary school, I didn't really learn any Irish because um, obviously we lived in what was officially part of Britain. So we didn't learn that. Um, I think later, if I'd stayed longer, maybe in secondary school, I could have learned Irish. But it's a compulsory subject for children in Irish um, primary schools. All children in Ireland have to learn it. But there's a cutoff point, I think. So because I was 12 when we moved there, um, I it was optional for me. So I didn't have to learn it, but I really wanted to. And I don't know, because the others maybe had started at four years of age, that maybe I it was a little late, but I'd never felt, I, I always loved it, but I never really felt that I got much of a, of a handle on it. Um, but there were things that, you know, that we read in school. And there I refer to um, Duel is the name of one of the sections in the book. And that's the title of um, of a collection of Liam O'Flaherty stories um, in the Irish language. And Duel is a really beautiful word. It kind of means desire um, or longing, but it doesn't quite mean it. And there are lots of words like that in Irish that um, have no equivalent at all in English. And I quite love that about it. But recently, I tried to, I've decided to try and take myself in hand with the Irish language. So last summer, I, um, I went and did a residential 
course in a place it's it's known as a Gwaeltocht area which is an Irish speaking area there's still a few little pockets in the country where, where people still speak Irish where it's you know their first language so um, I went there for a week and did um, Irish classes You don't mention the specific year in which Trespasses is set mm-hmm. although there were clues yeah. like they go to see the film Chinatown mm-hmm. what was behind that choice? I think that was maybe something that I did with this, the stories. I had a particular story that probably I didn't realise it at the time. Maybe that's where the idea for trespasses came from, or maybe I worked some things out in that story for trespasses. And it's called In Silhouette, and um, it takes place over forty years because there were several sections and several time frames. I didn't want to have to put a date on each of them. So I try to leave some sort of a clue so the reader might know what year it was. So maybe with the book, I was trying to do that. Although I'm, I'm wondering maybe if that was something from the early draft, because certainly um, later, it was later drafts when I was trying to firm up, um, y- you know, details. Um, because Trespasses is a work of fiction and the characters are fictional, I think maybe because of the time and place that it's set in, I felt a kind of responsibility to make the textures of the world as real as possible and as true as possible to what I remembered. And I suppose that's maybe why I used the news as a structuring motif. And when I did that, you know, the news reports that the children, um, I suppose, recount in their own words every day are pretty, they pretty much correspond to what the actual news reports would have been at the time. There are other details, I suppose, like what songs were in the charts and there's stuff about Leeds United, which is 1975 as well. So... You conjure the detail of Kushla's world so specifically the way the children that she teaches dress, the sense of being in her brother's pub. Do you have a technique that you use? How do you look at the world as you're building it? Maybe it's how I see the world. Like my sister complains that if she makes me a cup of tea in her house that I drink it and then turn it upside down to see who made the cup. And I think that maybe those details are just really important to me, even like daft domestic details and stuff. I think that part of it as well is that I, certainly at the start, wasn't terribly confident about giving access to a character's inner thoughts. I found that very difficult. And maybe I tried, maybe I was trying to get around it by letting the reader you know move with the character through rooms or along streets and stuff so that you get to see and feel what they feel or something um, rather than have them talking about their feelings for a long time which I, I don't know how to do really. You absolutely do you feel that you're on each character's shoulder. Well thank you very much. As they move through the world who is your first reader? How do you, you've said, you know, a story is ready to go and you can't do mm-hmm. anymore. Mm-hmm. But is there someone you show it to first? Uh, so my first reader is Una Mannion. Una Mannion actually set up the writing group that I joined in Sligo. And she had her first novel published about two months before my short story collection was published last year. I think there's just um, tremendous mutual trust and, and respect or something. And also... I trust her to know what I'm trying to do, even when I don't really know it myself. Um, so that's why she she sees everything first. That's, that's yeah. very, very valuable to yeah. have. I heard that you don't need a lot of solitude to write. You like a bit of bustle around you, am I yeah, correct? I, mean, I thought I needed solitude. So I want um, a residency, should I say, um, to, to stay um, in a cottage on an island for um, for a few weeks. And it, it was in November. 
and it's a cottage off the west coast of Ireland. And I did okay for maybe a few days, but I do think I saw dead people after a few days. Then the person who was supposed to have the residency right after me couldn't come. So I had nearly a month there by myself in November. And were you a bit wild by I the end of that? I was a bit mad, yeah. <laughs> I was a bit mad, all right, in the end. So, um, yeah, I just, I haven't really done anything drastic like that by myself since. I did get kind of amazing amounts of work done, but it was just a really strange time. Um, the wind was kind of whistling um, all the time and, um, yeah, it was wild. Now I want to ask you a bit about the reception Mm -hmm. of your work. What happens when it goes out into the world? Is the reception of your work important to you? Are you a person who reads reviews, cares about that sort of thing? Well, I was warned by people before my first book came out. When when the stories came out, I was warned by people not to um, not to look at Goodreads. So I look at it all the time. No, I don't really. I have looked at it a couple of times. I don't look at it all the time. Um, I I think that with this one uh, with trespasses, I was so terrified by the reception um, in the north of Ireland to it that. Um, sort of freed me from the terror of the reviews or something, because. I left the North when I was 12 and because I'm having to rely on memory and also because the place is still so fraught, you know, um, the Good Friday agree- Agreement did bring peace. But I just think that issues around identity are um, very difficult. You know, people, a lot of people are still obsessed with identity. So, yeah, I was very frightened that um, people in Belfast were just going to come after me and say, oh, it's, it isn't what it was like and you don't remember properly, you know, because I was having to trust my memory. But it, that didn't happen at all. Well, and I suppose I wonder, I... As you were writing, I was thinking reading this, of course, there's the Good Friday Agreement, but because of Brexit, Mm -hmm. Northern Ireland has come back into the news. And I wondered what sense of, I want to say, responsibility you might have felt to writing about this time, because these are troubles, Mm -hmm. as they were called, Mm -hmm. in the past Mm -hmm. and yet not in the past. Yeah. Um, yeah, I felt a huge sense of responsibility. I think that's why, you know, as I said earlier, that I did try to um, make the rest of the world as true uh, as possible. And also, um, you know, when it came to partiality, like, you know, or impartiality, um, pe- people have said to me, oh, you know, you're very impartial. But I didn't do that deliberately. I think what I really set out to do was to tell the truth as I had seen it and as I remembered it and and hoped that that wasn't going to cause terrible offence everywhere. And... The vast majority, I mean, when I say the vast majority, if anybody if anybody from the North doesn't like it, they certainly haven't said it to me. Do you know what I mean? I haven't had, I really expect to get a big barrage of, you know, of, of abuse on Twitter or something. And I, I, that, that really didn't happen. Were there any responses that really meant something to you? You know, whether, as it were, public or private mm-hmm. responses, positive yeah, responses? I, I mean, that happens all the time. I did a reading in Belfast last week and... It was lunchtime and the streets were very grey and cold and empty and I didn't think anybody would be there. And there were about, well, I don't know, 150 people in, in the room and um, uh, lots of them had bought books already. They, they weren't just buying books at the event and um, they wanted to tell me things about, you know, parts of the book maybe that resonated with them. There, there was, um, you know, a couple of people who told me that they'd been brought up and their family had bars. Other people who said that 
you know, they'd had to leave the area they lived in or that they, that maybe something in the book reminded them of, of something in their own family. So, yeah, all of that is a privilege to, to hear, really, you know. But it just, a lot of it, a lot of it really, um, there's still a lot of sadness. And I think, um, you know, there's been a relatively small number of convictions. So a lot of people of troubles, deaths, and um, a lot of people are still feeling quite aggrieved and, and hurt, you know, so. Maybe this is an impossible question. I hope not. And of course, you will be looking forward. But when you look back at what you've achieved, what do you think about what you've done? How do you consider your work? Perhaps you try not to do that. I, in some ways, it nearly feels like someone else did it. I don't know. I mean, yeah, out in the shed that I have, I have the there are books, you know, with my name on them. I think maybe when the books land in the post, you know, when publishers you write a book and publishers send you a box of books, and um, that's always good for a bit of a cry. So um, yeah, I, I'm always kind of staggered by that. Um, but then the rest of the time, I don't know. I still live in a kind of 1970s house in the west of Ireland. Um, I don't know. It, it sort of hasn't changed. I don't know. It doesn't really feel like I did it. And now we always close our podcast with a sequence of quick questions. Okay. So I will start by asking you, what is the most surprising thing you have learned from being a writer? Um, I think I'm surprised to learn that I'm not entirely sure I believe in talent. I so hard it, work. Maybe. Just work, yeah. You, sure, there's no point in being talented if you're down the pub or not sitting at the desk. So, yeah, I believe in work. Um, I, I would have thought that people were like supremely talented, but if they're not doing the work, it's no good. Sticking to the theme of surprise, what would people be surprised to learn about you? I'd say they'd be surprised to know that I ran, I ran a bar in Beirut. People are usually very surprised about that. What is your idea of perfect happiness? Um, perfect happiness I guess it's sitting around a big table with uh, my mother and father and my sisters and my brother not necessarily with any of the partners I have to say and having nice food and nice drink and a good laugh that's probably perfect happiness What advice would you give to anyone who wants to express their creativity? Maybe this comes back to your answer about work um, Yeah it probably is yeah I think just do it and don't think In one word how would you like to be remembered as a writer? Um, I would like people to to remember that I that I somebody told me that um, that book made them feel as if they've been kicked around the floor a bit, um, but in a good way. So yeah, that would be good enough for me. And last question: What would you like your next book to look like? Oh. Um, uh, I want to get it in on time. That's the first thing I'd like. I'd like it to get to get it in by the deadline. I've, I've started my next book, and it's going to be different from Trespasses in lots of ways. So I hope that whatever way it way it looks, that I've learned new things from the writing of it. That's a wonderful answer. Thank you so much, Louise Kennedy, for joining us on the Rendezvous Literaire podcast. It's been such a pleasure talking to you, and I hope. We have a chance to talk again soon. And when you finish that next book, I can't wait to read it. Thank you very much for having me, Erica. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Rendezvous Littéraire Rue Cambon podcast. To discover more about it, you will find images, links and references 
on the Chanel website. À bientôt